there are cases that are not explainable in conventional terms that have been made by credible observers of relatively incredible things. When he got right up to it, it lit up. Was this a warning? Was this an attempt to communicate? I was running and playing, and then I saw this maroon color in the sky. Are we alone? It's a question humankind has been asking ever since looking up at the stars and contemplating our role in the universe. Since the 1960s, we've been sending ships into space to explore. We've got a probe heading to the sun, orbiters studying distant moons, robots on Mars, and at the end of October, NASA re-established contact with its Voyager 2 spacecraft, launched from the Earth in 1977. It's now more than 11.6 billion miles from Earth. Is it possible that somewhere beyond those 11.6 billion miles, another civilization has been doing the same thing? The public has a right to know. The question is no longer if they are here, but why. I'm Mark Hartzman, and you're listening to a special episode of Weird Historian about UFOs and extraterrestrial life, featuring Lee Spiegel, co-producer and co-writer of the new documentary, The Phenomenon, directed by James Fox. Are we closer to finally finding out if our pale blue dot has company? Thanks for joining me today with Weird Historian. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's good to have you here. Could you tell me a little bit about your research with this project? How how difficult was it tracking down some of the people that you spoke with? And were these people excited to be talking to you, or was it something you had to sort of cajole them into? Um, it was mostly people who wanted to talk. Uh, we, we had to entice uh, some of them, depending on who it was. You have to remember, I was involved only for – during the last three years, uh, in 2017, I was uh, still working uh, as a feature writer for the Huffington Post, and director James Fox, who had already done uh, three interesting UFO documentaries prior to this one, uh, he was already working on the phenomenon already for four years before I even stepped in <laughs> into the game. And he kept trying to ask me to come on board and be part of the team. It would have been a problem, uh, not, not, not a problem, personal problem, but uh, I guess a conflict of interest to have me working on this as well as uh, Huffington Post. But it worked out because it turned out to be in middle of 2017, a big staff layoff at Huffington Post. And I was part of that layoff. And the day that that happened, I called James Fox and said, um, are you still interested in having me be part of your team? I'm suddenly available. And he said, yes, I'm sorry that, that you're not we're there anymore, but I'm not really. <laughs> so, so yes, please, welcome aboard. Let's talk about it. So for the three years that I worked on the film, um, it was just one thing after another, not only just tracking people down and, and getting them to agree to be in the film, but tracking down lots of archival information, documents, footage, visuals, newspaper clippings, 
Um, in fact, James's sister, Kelly, she was our principal archive collector, our archive co-producer. And she was going to all kinds of places around the country looking for things that we could insert into the movie that no one's ever seen before. Uh, and it was little things like we, we started the movie off with a great sequence involving a close encounter between an Air Force B-25 bomber, World War II bomber, and, um, and the pilot, uh, Air Force Lieutenant Colonel William Coleman, who uh, later became public spokesman for the Air Force's Project Blue Book, famous UFO study. But on this one day in 1955, he was at the controls of a B-25 bomber, and they had this incredible close encounter with the UFO, which he himself basically said this was a true flying saucer. They were that close to it. And James and I were trying to figure out, well, how can we, how can we really present this case in a very dramatic way? Because it's a very dramatic case. Because nobody had uh, actual footage of the flying saucer back in 1955 that these guys were flying right behind. Uh, and we, we, we decided we need a B-25 bomber. And so I decided to go find us a plane. <laughs> We we didn't want to use any archival footage of a of a, a B twenty five from World War Two taken from one plane or another plane. We wanted something that was specifically there for us. And I found a company in Southern California. We made a deal with them, and we we rented out their B twenty five bomber for a day. And it gives really great authenticity to the story. And a friend of mine uh, named Dale Hendrickson who is an incredible illustrator. He's one of the original illustrators of the characters on The Simpsons. He's been doing that since The Simpsons went on the air years and years ago. He's also a great illustrator or painter of outer space photography or outer space paintings and illustrations. And he said he'd like to make an illustration of an encounter that I had in 1975. He said, just tell me, give me all the details and I'll turn it into a painting, which he did beautiful thing that he always displays at UFO symposium uh, around the world. But so when we decided it's not going to be good enough to have just Captain Coleman telling the story on camera, James and I looked at each other and said, we got to show the flying saucer. We have to show it. And so we hired Dale Hendrickson, my illustrator friend from The Simpsons, to create a sequence showing first the shadow the circular shadow of the flying saucer, and then the saucer itself, as if you were looking at it from being inside the cockpit of the B-25 bomber, right on its tail as it's going across a field, and it's riveting. It's totally riveting. Every time I see this little sequence, I, I almost cry. It's so realistic. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's very cool. I, I noticed that you guys did a lot of recreations in the movie, which I liked. We wanted something that would, I think, take people's breath away, and it does. And, and that took a long time to put that all together between the, the recreation, the bombers, I mean, everything, the interview with, with Captain Coleman. But then there were interviews where uh, we really wanted for a long time the interview with Senator Harry Reid, for example, the former majority leader of the Senate. He was the man who was basically in charge and who came up with the money that led to uh, the, the Pentagon uh, admitting that they had been studying UFOs for a long time. And that also led to the uh, 
the release of the, the three famous videos that we've all seen by now, including the famous Tic Tac video. Well, if it wasn't for Senator Harry Reid, we wouldn't have known about that stuff at all. And we, of course, wanted Senator Reid and it took a long time. And if it wasn't for uh, the, the running interference for us was the great journalist for KLAS-TV in Las Vegas, George Knapp. George Knapp is the man who single-handedly brought into the consciousness of the public the phrase Area 51 back in the late 80s when no one had ever heard of Area 51. Wow. Uh, and he, he was and is good friends with Senator Reid. And he convinced Reid that Reid should sit down with us and, and talk to us about what they did to get everything going on behind the scenes in the Pentagon. It was a great interview. And in fact, the same day that we did the interview with, with uh, Senator Reid, then George Knapp came over. And in that one day, we, we got both of them, Senator Reid and George Knapp, for two great interviews. It was, it was amazing. Can we talk a little bit more about Harry Reid? I mean, he did a lot while he was in the government because it came out in that New York Times article in 2017, which I know you talk about right. in the film. But do you want to describe a little bit about the program that he had going on for what since uh, the 90s or the, the early 2000s in terms of the money that was budgeted for the Department of Defense to investigate UFOs? It was pretty covert until that article came out. A lot of people don't know that $22 million isn't really a lot of money. In the scheme of things, with black budgets of money for projects that the government and the military spend all the time, $22 million is like not that much. But still, nobody was doing it. At least we don't know if anybody else was using other monies from someplace else before Harry Reid came along and was able to come up with the $22 million for this kind of a study. But now we, we tend to suspect from all the people that we've spoken to in, in putting the film together – we believe that when, when the Air Force said in 1969 that they were stopping their Project Blue Book study on UFOs, and that there's nothing more to see about UFOs, nothing more to talk about, there's nothing here of any interest scientifically, and certainly nothing here could involve our national security. We now know from all the people that we've talked to that that was just not true. It was a lie. The military or government or some facets of the government, they've not stopped their investigation all of these decades. And that's that all kind of comes out now in the film. This is important stuff. And we, we try to get to the bottom of what was it? What is it about this phenomena that makes it such a possible potential national security? And again, it, it's not just the national security of the United States. This is a global thing. We're not just, just talking about an, an American phenomenon. It's international. Um, the, the leaders of all nations, they know about this stuff. But the difference is now is we suspect, and we try to bring this out in the film, that no single leader or group of countries knows all the facts. We don't know exactly what's going on. And, and there is currently, at this time, there is an ongoing Senate Intelligence Committee investigation going on into UFOs. The chairman of the committee is Florida Senator Marco Rubio. And in fact, one of the people on, on that committee is possibly um, our next vice president of the United States, Senator Kamala Harris. 
She's part of this committee looking into UFOs. She didn't mention any of that on the campaign. <laughs> she should have. Pretty interesting stuff. I kept hoping for some kind of an October surprise during the, uh, during the debates. That would have been a surprise. You know, because both candidates, whether it's Trump or Biden, they had to know just from people in their own committees um, or, or on their teams, they had to know that, yes, this UFO or UAP, as some people like to call it now, or stands for uh, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, what, whatever these things are and wherever they come from, the first consideration by the United States was that they could be secret current technology by either the Russians or China or, or, or someone else that's just already way ahead of us in technology. That was the first consideration. But now it's, it's gone beyond that. It's gone way beyond that. Because now they're thinking, well, whatever these things are, they are totally outmaneuvering, outperforming any known technology. And this is nothing new because this has been going on since the 1940s when these things were reported by the military. So this is not a new phenomenon. But what's new is once that New York Times story broke in December of 2017 uh, and the three videos were made public, it's been in the news a lot. We're, we've all been made aware of it. And people are saying, does this mean we're, we're closer to disclosure? I don't know what disclosure means to you. Disclosure might mean different things to different people. But all that we know, in, in talking to Senator Harry Reid, there is much more behind the scenes about the phenomenon itself that's, that's still being kept from the public. And even in the film, you hear him say, according to him, this is very, very bad for the country. You know, there was one, one of the speakers you had, I think he was the governor of Arizona at the end of the film. Uh, yes, that was, that was um, Governor Fife Symington. Yeah, Governor. G governor Fife Symington. I thought it was interesting that he mentioned that he's not worried about these visitors because if they wanted to wipe us out, they would have done it by now. Which seems pretty reasonable, seems logical. Like, hey, if they could get here, they wanted to do something bad since the 40s, they could have done it. So do you agree with that idea? And if there's no threat, then why couldn't the government be more open about well, it? Well, I certainly agree with that statement. I, I very often will say to people, look, if, if they were here to eat us, well, we would have been toast already. But they don't seem to be here for that, whoever, whever they are. Um, and and it, it goes it goes way beyond that too. It, it's not just something that's been going on for the last seventy years. In 1968, a whole year before the Air Force discontinued Project Blue Book, cadets at the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, part of their curriculum was a science book called Introductory Space Science. It was part of the physics curriculum. Uh, there was a chapter in this textbook. Chapter 33 called Unidentified Flying Objects. And in the chapter, military officials told the cadets that not only are UFOs, flying saucers, unidentified flying objects, uh, something that has to be considered today. And when I say today, I mean 1968. They, they clearly lay out for the cadets that humanity has been seeing, witnessing, interacting these objects for almost 50,000 years. 50,000 years? This is what they were telling the cadets. So that goes back to 
ancient Egypt theories and, and much more, of course. Not only that, but they describe in details to the cadets various books, ancient books from Egypt, from India, from China, of stories uh, from the Bible, things that could easily have been some kind of contact with something or someone from somewhere else. Wow. So, so there's the answer to, to your original question, which is, if they were here to hurt us, to destroy us, to, to invade us, to eat us, why haven't they done it? Yeah. <laughs> what, what is their agenda? Are we just entertainment? Are we like their TV? They come check out what's going on on Earth for some entertainment, maybe tourism. Uh, or, or are we possibly uh, one of the, the good uh, stops on their on their uh, vacation tours of the solar system? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, you know about that because Mars, <laughs> you're an expert on Mars. Right. We may be doing the same thing one day, right? We'll just be zipping around. You know, yeah. people want to go fly around the moon right now. Like that's that'll happen soon. So we're just sort of on that early step, right? And, you know, you have to real, realize that we we haven't exactly been quiet about who we are, where we are in this little corner of the Milky Way galaxy. The early radio and television broadcasts of things like Isle of Lucy, the Lone Ranger, you know, things like that. This stuff is still being picked up eons away out in space and any technology that's got any kind of sophisticated equipment that can pick this stuff up can certainly figure out where it originated from and just follow the stream and take them right to earth <laughs> or take them right to the third planet out from the sun of this solar system right. so we're not hard to find and we're the, we're the place to see they're going to want to come see the lone ranger and i love lucy like you know they want to catch the latest episode you know and and here, here's here are another couple of possible theories, uh, more recent theories, UFOs uh, may in fact be some kind of robotic drones, again, owned by someone, maybe not from anyone on this planet, but you know, we're sending uh, unmanned spacecraft all over the place True. to do studies of planets and, we, and asteroids. We just recently made it to one of the asteroids where we actually landed for the first time just to pick up some samples to bring it back to Earth. Right. So yeah. Uh, and that's one theory. And another interesting theory that I, that I love um, is that we could be, when I say we could be, we could be the object of intense study by future descendants who, like I say, come from the future, who at some point in our distant future have got the technology to build vehicles that can travel backwards in time and are back here studying us. I've always liked that theory. I've thought about that in the past as well, that are they just, are we just seeing time travelers? So yeah, yeah I think that's yeah. that's a cool idea. And sure, and there are people that say, well, if, if they're not robotics, if they're not time travelers, uh, if they're not aliens from another planet, perhaps they're from an, another reality or dimension. Physics is telling us now that there are probably lots of different realities out there. You know what? You don't even have to go to another reality to now talk to any astronomer or exobiologist, and they will give you statistics of how much we really know is out there in our own physical universe. And now they're saying that the majority of those suns probably have at least one planet orbiting it. Those are numbers that are staggering to our minds right now. But it's they really are. Yeah. I've seen those reports and it is crazy. It's like, wow, there's lots of options out there. 
Yeah, I mean, it gets to the point, you know, where how arrogant are we or are any of the people still living on this planet? How arrogant is it to think that we really are the only the only ones around with any kind of intelligence, if you can even call what we are intelligent? It's becoming more and more questionable. Oh, yeah. Do you, do you think um, do you think these visitors, it, let's just let's. Well, we can say 50,000 years back or even just back to the 40s. Do we think that um, that that's the same same species of aliens or do we think that we're getting visited by all different kinds of creatures or drones or whatever it might be from different, you know, all different planets? Well, to answer your question, you know, that book that I was just telling you about, the in, uh, Introductory Space Science, the, the Air Force military book uh, that taught their cadets that UFOs have been around almost 50,000 years. But in that chapter, they basically say, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing it, but it's a close quote. They say three, maybe four groups of extraterrestrials here uh, at their own ages of development. That's an amazing, that's almost a total quote from that chapter. But they were saying this to their cadets in 1968, that they believe it's possible Earth is being visited by three or four different groups of aliens. Like, wow, really? No wonder you want to keep it secret. <laughs> that is pretty crazy. Yeah. You know, the other thing that's really weird about the whole thing is like, if you look at the grand scheme of things, we humans have 50,000 years. That's just like a blip in a timeline of Earth, right? And in the timeline of the universe. So to meet up with three different species of aliens, or even one species of aliens in this little blip of ours, coincides with their little blip, their little opportunity for intelligent life to have evolved, formed, and survived, and figured out how to get here, is is kind of a crazy bit of odds in itself, isn't it? That like we could sync up in, in such a way? Well, you, you know, there are a lot of people out there who claim, and I'm talking about the, uh, the skeptics and the debunkers of UFOs, who basically say, nah, there's really nothing to this. We really are you know, the only game in town. Well, these are the kind of people who will say to you, um, my, my late friend, the nuclear physicist, Stanton Friedman, used to always say to audiences that he gave lectures at, he would always say that, that when it comes to UFOs, if somebody says to you that that bit of UFO evidence is impossible, well, what they're really saying to you is, I don't know how to do that, so it must be impossible. And, and that's very important because what, what they're saying is, because we here in the year 2020, if we don't know how to do what apparently some of these things are able to do, that doesn't mean that no one else has been able to figure it out already. Just imagine any civilization uh, or intelligence that's not us coming from anywhere else. If we just allow them, oh, what, 500 years ahead of us? maybe a thousand, 10,000 years, a little more technologically more advanced than we are. Just imagine the kinds of things that they can do. We'll say, well, nobody's visiting us because it would be too much of a hassle for them to get here from there. Look at the distances between where they are and where we are. How could they get enough fossil fuels? It would take them many generations. And, and wait a minute, what if they're 10,000 years ahead of us and they figured out how to do, I don't know, hopscotching through wormholes, for example, you start your trip on one day and what, two days later, maybe not even two days later, they're landing in people's backyards here. I mean, really, we, we can't just assume that what we know is all that we know. 
uh, Stan Friedman used to also say, debunkers have a very special mantra. It's very simply, this is what they say. Don't bother me with the facts. My mind is already made up. <laughs> well, I think what you're saying is totally true. I mean, if you look at the progress of, of uh, humanity over just the past hundred years, it's astounding how much we've done, right? And yes. People didn't used to think that you know, flight would ever be possible. And then you go from the Wright brothers to Lindbergh to, you know, Apollo 11. And now we're, you know, sending, like you said, robots to Mars. Yeah. All within like about 100 years. So, yeah, yeah, you're, like you said, you give it 500 more years and who knows what we'll be doing at that point. It's hard. To, you can't even imagine, which is the point, I guess. If you could imagine it, it'd be, you wouldn't be thinking enough. I, I feel very comfortable in that Whoever might be visiting us, and I think someone or something is, whoever it is, they're not here to destroy us. I feel really good about that. But what I also feel strongly about is if there are three or four or more groups of extraterrestrials that are kind of hopscotching around us and, and know who we are, they probably know who each other are as well. And I suspect that none of them are ready or willing to invite us into their federation of planets because we're not a friendly species down here. We're not ready for that. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the theories that was thrown around in the the late 40s, because I talked about this in my Mars book, mm -hmm. about people thinking that maybe Martians were seeing, you know, uh, nuclear blasts on Earth from World War II uh, and coming to check out what was going on here and make sure we weren't going to be a threat to their planet. So, there could be some truth to that, that they see, they see the nonsense that we deal with here and we create here. And uh, yeah, we're not worthy of their their uh, collective yet. Well, since you saw the, the film, The Phenomenon, in the very beginning, uh, after you see the close encounter between the B-25 bomber and the flying saucer, there's a statement by Colonel William Coleman. He says, you know, the Air Force is is a very strange being when it comes to anything like this. If these things prove hostile, then we're going to shoot them down. If they're not hostile, then there's no problem. <laughs> you know, it's like, what a statement. <laughs> yeah, it's like the movies, ready to shoot down everything. That was it. That's our attitude. Shoot first and ask questions <laughs> later. Well, so let's just say that at some point, you know, we're talking about uh, all this, you know, lots of news being released recently and videos right. being put out there. So it seems like there's some momentum in terms of maybe leaking or releasing some actual information of what's been seen by officials, pilots, so forth. So let's just say they did put out a statement about the existence of UFOs. How do you think people would react? Would there be panic? Would there be excitement? Would there be acceptance? What, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, as According to most of the people who we've talked to, in the film, there would be probably some uncertainty among the population because, again, this is not an American phenomenon. If, you, if somebody's going to make an announcement, it has to be an international announcement aimed at everybody on Earth. You can't just make this announcement for the Americans. It has to be that big a deal. And, and it has to be a reassuring announcement that basically says uh, we've been under surveillance by someone for a very long time that, that seem to be here for peaceful purposes, and they should reassure us by saying things like, these visitors don't seem to be antagonistic to us in any way. If anything, we're the ones who fire first. 
and and so we we just we will keep you updated on developments in this and um, please continue to go about your daily lives so like here's and here's the trick about it i mean really please go about your daily lives don't worry about it we know you all have your own lives to live and oh and please by the way for those of you who might be concerned now that because of now we're admitting that a lot of commercial airline pilots have had a lot of close encounters and and have been very concerned about how close these things have come to their aircraft please um we we don't want you to stop continuing to fly the friendly skies. And, I, and I'll tell you this, you know, what airline company, what corporate leader of any airline company wants to come forward and and confirm to the public that a lot of their pilots have seen strange things in the skies? Probably not. <laughs> None of them will. And their pilots are not supposed to talk about these things. Something weird might happen up in that friendly sky. There's a lot, see, all these possibilities have big question marks. How is this going to affect religion? For hey, sure. Hey, there's the big one, right? Yeah. Lots of implications. Yeah. How is this going to affect anything, any corporate? Uh, how will it affect education? How will it affect how will it affect international relations between the countries? There's another good one. Well, I was just thinking when you talked about making it a global announcement, it actually seems like the kind of thing that could be positive and bring the world closer together. That reminding, hey, we're we are really one people. Um, maybe it would behoove us to get along a little bit better. Well, you know, I I tried to do that, and I'm not just saying that to pat myself on the back. But in 1978, I was I became the only person in history to produce a major presentation on UFOs at the United Nations, um, and it's still talked about. To this day, it was still considered, is considered a milestone in the whole UFO subject because I, I, I wanted to see if there was a way that we could get the nations of the world to, at the very least, form an international investigation committee where countries of the world would share information, stories, photos, visuals, uh, interviews, and to have it all be kind of funneled into the United Nations. I, I would have been happy to even run that kind of a little office. You know, just just give me a table, give me a phone, give me a filing cabinet. You know, let me let me kind of help be the person to help coordinate this. But, um, you know, it turns out that not enough nations uh, wanted to do it at that time. We, we found out 30 years later, after the fact, this was when I was still working at Huffington Post, and... The, the United Kingdom had just released a new batch of previously classified UFO documents from the UK. And among the new documents that were being re released was this whole batch of papers and memorandums from 1977, 1978, that basically said, um, there's this presentation about to happen at the United Nations in 1978. We think it should be stopped. We don't think the United Nations should do this because if they did, it would give the United Nations uh, some real lack of credibility you know, in the world. And I saw these documents and, and I went right to my editor at HuffPost, Buck Wolf. And I said, you got to let me write this story because apparently the UK tried to stop my presentation in 1978. And now I'm taking it personally and I want to write the story in the first person. 
and he let me do it. Okay, good. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. That's great. Yeah. So so I'm sure, so, Buck loved it. Yeah, uh, he, he did. We 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 got some good numbers on that story. <laughs> yeah, that's great. So so that you know, it's it's like really, we we tried it once in 1978, and maybe maybe it's time to do it again. I, I certainly would not have a problem if somebody wanted to approach me and say, hey, we saw what you did in 1978. Um, would you like to try it again? And uh, let's talk. That's all I would say is, let's talk. I'm, I'm up for it. Yeah, I think that'd be amazing. Maybe we're ready for it this time. Um, as long as, you know, talking about the 70s, I got to go back to something you mentioned earlier on, because you said you had your own experience in 1975. Yes. So I, I got to know what that was. What happened? When Project Blue Book was still in existence throughout the 50s and 60s until 1969, uh, many of your listeners might know the name of um, astronomer J. Allen Hynek. In fact, uh, the History Channel has a, uh, they had a series out called Project Blue Book, and it was all the exploits of the real J. Allen Hynek, but he was portrayed by uh, a, another actor. And so Dr. Hynek and I, we became friends in the 70s, when I was putting together a, um, for CBS, I put together a, a vinyl documentary spoken word record called UFOs, The Credibility Factor. And, and he was one of the first scientists who I interviewed for that record. And he called me one day in 1975, and he said, uh, he said listen, I'm getting phone calls uh, from sheriffs, people, highway patrolmen, police officers, all in the area around Lumberton, North Carolina. Three or four nights in a row, they're reporting seeing something strange in the skies down there, and they don't know how to explain it and or how to investigate it. I can't get there at the moment. I know you're in the middle of putting your documentary together, but if you have some time, would you go down there and, and maybe do some interviews with the law enforcement people there? And if you come up with some great interviews, you can use them for your album, and I'll publish your findings. And I said to, to Dr. Hynek, well, let me ask you, what is it that they're reporting, seeing? He said, well, here in 1975, we haven't heard very much about this kind of, a, of an object, but they're reporting something that is um, a V-shape or boomerang-shaped object, a triangular-shaped object. Now, this see, now you hear about triangular shapes all the time here in 2020 and going back in, uh, into the 80s. But back in 75, you didn't hear much about it. So I said, so I said, well, let me ask you this, Alan. Is that really what they're reporting? Because, you know, I've always wanted to see a classic flying saucer myself. <laughs> and he said, he said, look, if you don't want to go, if you don't have the time to go, and I said, uh, don't finish that thought. You are the last person I want to piss off at this point. I'm going. <laughs> so I'll, I'll be happy to go on your behalf. And within three hours of my arriving at the sheriff's department in Lubbock, North Carolina, uh, calls started coming in through the sheriff's dispatcher. And it, it was starting to get very, very busy. People were reporting the thing was back. So into a sheriff's car, I went with one of the sheriff's officers, Ron Thompson, and we followed, we, we kept in touch with other law people who were in their cars 
by the car walkie-talkies until we all converged uh, next to a big field. It was, it was dark out now. There was no moon. Stars were coming out. And we all parked the cars right next to the field, uh, turned the engines off, and turned all the lights off. And the only sound that we could hear uh, in the area were the sounds of dogs and horses sounding a little nervous about something in the area that shouldn't be there. And as we all looked directly across the field, above a line of trees, we saw this red and white alternating light. It was like very slowly, white, then red, white, then red, moving slowly from our left above the trees until it got to just about where it was directly across from our vision. And then it started moving directly across the field in our direction. Well, that got our attention. And it, it got to about the midway point, and we realized we didn't hear anything. Whatever the thing was, it was silent, and then it got to be directly above us, and it stopped. It was just hovering in the sky above us. Again, no engine sound, nothing. But at that point, it, we could see from underneath, it had a row of white lights up one side, red lights up the other, and a big bright light at the apex of it. And because of all the lights from underneath it, we could see the lights were reflecting the triangular shape of the object at that point. It was easy to see. Again, very quiet. And I remember thinking, I feel pretty safe here. I mean, I'm surrounded by guys with their six shooters. What could go wrong? <laughs> you know. <laughs> and then a moment later, I thought, what am I saying to myself? If, if this thing is here to eat us or take us away um, and no one will ever know whatever happened to us, how safe do I suddenly feel right now? So, so there was that, and I'm sure we all felt the same way, there was that moment of feeling both excited at what we were looking at and I think we could all hear each other's hearts pounding out of our chests. I at, can imagine. Yeah, at this thing directly above us. Um, one of the officers said he didn't think it was much bigger than one of the patrol cars we were in. It wasn't a very big thing, so it wasn't that really high above us. And as we were all just kind of watching it, all of a sudden, out of the apex, the, the brighter light on the front of the object, a beam came out. A beam of light went straight down um, and landed right on the ground, right at my feet. And um, it, it stayed there no more than two seconds, and then a light went right back into the thing. The whole object turned an amber color, and it very slowly turned about 45 degree angles, again, making no sound, and it just started to move off slowly, and then it shot away. And we all got back into our cars and, and chased it as far as we could, and all the way along the way, along in the roads, um, we stopped at different places, and we came upon other officers from different counties who had just had their own encounter with it. And so I started doing interviews with all these people because, frankly, that's what I was supposed to be doing down there was getting interviews for Dr. Hynek. Uh, and, and so there was one interview. His name was – I never forgot this guy – Police Chief Gary Moore. He was sitting in his patrol car just, just relaxing that night. And I, I'd heard he had seen the thing, found him. I walked up to his car, and he was still sitting in the car, and I introduced myself. And I said, I understand you, you saw something here recently. He said, yep, sure did. 
I said, well, can you describe it? He said, well, I was just sitting here eating my sandwich, and all of a sudden the whole inside of my car lit up, big bright light inside the car. And, and I, I leaned over, stuck my head out, and looked up, and he didn't say this, but much like, what, two years later, Richard Dreyfus did in Close Encounters of the Third Kind when he's in his truck and he looks up and, right. and the UFO burns half of his face. But back in 1975, I didn't know they were going to have anything like this in, in a movie. <laughs> so, so the police chief looked up and there was this thing. It was parked right in the sky above me. And I said, well, what did you do? He said, I got out of the car, went over to the trunk, pulled out our official lamp. I guess all official cars have these giant, like, big flashlights that they use for emergencies. He said, I just aimed it up at the thing. I blinked on once, and it blinked back at me. Oh, wow. I went, oh. I went, yeah, I think I said, oh, wow. <laughs> Communication. Uh, and I said, did anything else happen? He said, yeah. I was really curious. I, I, blinked, I blinked twice, and it blinked twice. And then it was probably thinking, well, I'm done with this guy. I'm leaving. <laughs> <laughs> and it did. And it left. And, and I, it went a few miles away. And I found two other police officers who said they were just sitting in their car. And they saw this thing coming up the road. It was coming pretty fast. And then without stopping in, in its speed, it before it got to like just above their car, it suddenly made a quick 90 degree angle turn and sped away. And and I hear a lot of stories like that from experts who say if there was anything inside the thing, they never could have survived it. Or at least humans couldn't survive that kind of a sudden 90 degree angle turn and that speed. Yeah, well, like you said, humans couldn't, but who knows? Yeah, exactly. Who knows what they are? Yeah. So that was <laughs> not humans. That was some amazing. Experience and people have said to me over the years, you know, uh, you know, is that the thing that really got you interested in UFOs? And I said, no, I was already in the middle of doing my UFO documentary album when Dr. Heineck called me. Um, so seeing it was like for me the total icing on the cake for me. But what did, what did get you started? Uh, 1973, I was um, three years into New York, having arrived from New Hampshire in 1970 with a suitcase and guitar. I came to New York, I was a folk singer. And, and I was looking to get an album, a recording album. And uh, little did I know in 1970 that five years later, I would end up getting a recording album, but it was be about UFOs. But that's, <laughs> that's another story. But no, in 1973, I was working in a big um, musical instrument franchise in New York called Sam Ash. I was a guitar. Uh, salesperson. And in October of 1973, during the same week, there were two big UFO stories that hit the news. And it just caught my attention. One of two incidents uh, that took place in 1973 in October involved two fishermen, uh, Calvin Hickson and Charlie Parker. Uh, they were fishing on a pier in Pascagoula, and they apparently, they claimed they had this amazing experience where they, they claimed to have been taken on board flying saucer and examined. Uh, you didn't hear about a lot of stories like that back then. And their story has sort of up, it, it's held up over the years. The, 
between the believers and the skeptics and the debunkers, it's been hard to figure out what happened to them. But very soon, uh, a new movie is coming out, and I believe it's going to be called The Pascagoula Incident. So that's, that's one story that took place. The other story that happened that week in 73 that made news, a four-man helicopter, Army helicopter crew over Ohio almost collided with a UFO. And they all saw this red light coming at them from the horizon. And at first they thought it was a radio tower beacon, but it kept getting closer and closer and faster until they thought they were going to collide with the thing. And they all braced for impact. The thing, instead of colliding with them, stopped, went above the helicopter and hovered above the helicopter. And the, um, the helicopter pilot, Colonel Larry Coyne, who later became one of my principal speakers at the United Nations in 1978, uh, he, he said what happened was this thing was right above the helicopter, and because of the lights underneath it and from our helicopter, we could see it was a cigar shape. It had no wings, no forward wings, no back wings, no vertical or horizontal stabilizers. It was, it was just like a gigantic dark cigar with a beam of like a, a light, a green light on front of it, and it shined this entire beam of light, of green light, that bathed all of our controls in the helicopter. And, and we couldn't move anywhere. It had us locked. And all of a sudden, we felt our helicopter being pulled up. And this thing had us in like a tracking device or a tracking beam. It pulled us up. We went from like 1,700 feet to like 3,000 feet like in, in a matter of seconds without knowing it, and suddenly there was a bump, and the thing just let us go, and it sped away, and we went to the near, next uh, nearby town, and we ordered, we called the, the army nearby, and we said, you better have some press there, because we're going to tell people what just happened to us. You're going to keep us from telling us. And the army had no problem with that. And they landed, and they told this story to the press, and there were other eyewitnesses on, on the ground who also reported seeing the incident from the ground. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's pretty crazy. Yeah. And, and in fact, those two incidents, the helicopter encounter um, and the, uh, the, the fisherman, about a week or two after the helicopter one, Captain Coyne, the, the pilot, he appeared on the old Dick Cavett show, the talk show. And I was riveted by the fact that he was there telling his story. And so I ended up meeting him and interviewing him for my 1975 uh, UFO album. But then three years later, um, when I was trying to put together an idea to do something at the United Nations, I thought, well, what speakers do I want? And he was one of the people I wanted to bring to the UN. And he wanted to come and tell his story to the United Nations. But he, he said, but, but, but what you got to do is, I can't just show up. You're going to have to call my commander in chief in Ohio and ask their permission to release me to come and, and tell my story. And I said, okay, who do I call? And he gave me the guy's name. I called the guy in Ohio, got him on the phone, introduced myself. I said, I'd like to, I'd like to bring Lieutenant Colonel now, Lieutenant Colonel Coyne, to the UN to tell his story of what happened in 1973. Would that be all right? And I was waiting. I was waiting for a loud no. The guy said, well, we don't really have a problem with Lieutenant Colonel Coyne doing that. We just ask 
one thing of you. And I thought, oh boy, here it comes. What, what, what would that be, sir? We don't want Lieutenant Colonel Coyne to show up at the United Nations in official army uniform. He has to show up wearing civilian clothes. I went, oh, because they, they, they didn't want the idea that the army was sanctioning him showing up as an army right. officer. So, Unofficial. Yeah. So I thought, wow, would it be okay? Would you have a problem if I were to just buy Lieutenant Colonel Coyne a new suit for the occasion? And he said, nope, enjoy it. We'll, we'll let him come. Just give us the dates and we'll make sure he can do it. And that's how he was able to come to the United Nations dressed in a brand new suit. <laughs> <laughs> so, so those two cases from 73 are what really spun me around. You know that famous, that fabled, um, like a light bulb appears over your head to give you an idea? Yep. Well, the light bulb that appeared over my head in 1973 was a light bulb that said to me, aha, you're going to give up your quest as a folk singer. Now you're going to start looking into UFOs. <laughs> and it's still shining. And, and it grabbed me by the throat and I, and I never let it go. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you've done so much. I mean, from the UN, all the articles, all the writings you've done, uh, the album, and of course this film. Now, oh yeah, which is, which is really great. How has the response been? I mean, do you hope to find more believers well, the, the, from it? The the reviews for the film have been very, very nice, and then most of the comments to those reviews. Because I've been reading a lot of them. People are really enjoying this, and people are doing multiple viewings of the film because they just can't believe the information that we're presenting in an hour and 40 minutes. It's, it's the kind of documentary that I always wished that I could have been a part of. Um, and this is the one, this is that documentary. It's, it's, it's been amazing. I will tell you this, when the movie came out, it was uh, first being offered on uh, seven different places online, places like iTunes, Google, uh, Amazon. There are seven different online platforms where you could buy the movie and itunes is one of them well on october 23rd turns out the phenomenon was the number one documentary and the number three movie overall uh worldwide on itunes that was it's amazing wow that's terrific congratulations like, yeah that's, that's great great success I, I knew that it would do really well only because there have been so many people out there around the world that have been waiting to see what the new James Fox film was going to be about. He has a lot of fans out there, and, and he didn't disappoint. And, and, and there have been some people, especially some of the debunkers who have said, ah, don't spend your money, don't bother looking at the film. They're just drudging up the same old famous stories from many years ago. Well, you know, I say to people, put your brakes on. You know what? Yes, there are many stories in this film that are well known, but you're not seeing them in the same way that they've been presented before. We've thrown a lot of new stuff in about them, and we've added a lot of things that have nothing to do with these stories. We've, we've got people in there you've never heard from before the way we present it. So, hey, give the film a chance and don't try to stop people from seeing it because, because you shouldn't do that. I think you have to find that balance. I mean, to make a film like this, you can't, you can't ignore the famous stories. So I think what you said, adding to it, yeah. presenting new material 
is a great way to offer something new. But then you really did have a good amount of new stories that were much more unknown. And I thought, you know, you mentioned this earlier, but I thought you guys did a good job in terms of showing that this is not just an American phenomenon. This is this is worldwide. And I love the story that you ended on, which I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was in Zimbabwe. Rua, Zimbabwe, yes. With the kids who, yeah. who saw this as children, you were able to get some of them as adults to kind of reflect on what they had seen oh, and revisit yeah. these places. And that was pretty powerful. I mean, this is all little kids. Who had no reason to... No reason to lie about what they saw in the sky. Right. No reason to lie about this four and a half to five foot tall being that, that came out and was standing next to whatever this object was that had landed on the ground there. Uh, just an incredible story all around. And uh, what teachers had also seen this thing. So uh, there, there are many stories like this in the film but we ended it on this story because there was so much credibility about it. Uh, nobody was lying about any of the stuff. You know, it, it's like, sure, some people might want to make up stories, but you don't put an hour and 40-minute film together and, and assume everybody's lying, everybody's just making it all up, it's all a big hoax, come on. There's got to be some give and take somewhere. And, and we hope that it will continue to do well. We just want people, especially the people who don't know a lot about UFOs. For them, this is UFOs 101. This is the primer for people who want to know about it. Yeah, I, well, and it's a great primer, and I think people want to know more, and and we'll look into it. And they should look up your articles for sure, because, like I said, you've written you've written a lot. I know for AOL, for Huffington Post. I know you've done so much, and I'm sure people will be excited to read more about uh, your experiences and and the stories you've reported on. Well, well, you know what? And you can even read, uh, anybody can read uh, my stories, even though it's been three years now since uh, I've been at HuffPost. You can actually still find my stories um, by simply going to Huffington Post Lee Spiegel and do a Google search like that, and it'll take you right to the uh, Huffington Post archives, and you can see all the stories, you can click on them and you can read all about. I, I did a combination of stories of UFOs and science. Uh, and uh, But but I'm very proud of what I did. I was at HuffPost uh, for, for seven years doing that. And uh, it's just been, it's been a nice ride. I spent eight years on NBC radio in the, the late 70s and in the middle, middle 80s. Um, it's been an interesting ride, Mark. <laughs> as you and now, know. of course, you, you've got your Edge of Reality radio show as well. So plenty more, yeah, plenty more there uh, with with more interesting people to to hear from as well. Well, I appreciate that. Not the least of which was you recently on my show. <laughs> yes, that was a lot of fun. Yep. If I can put in a plug for you, folks, if you want to get an amazing book that will tell you everything you want to know or would like to see about our neighbor, the red planet Mars, you need to buy a book called The Big Book of Mars, written by Mark Hartzman. That's all I have to say. <laughs> I, I appreciate the plug. Thank you. Oh, I love the book. Well, this has been really great. Uh, congratulations again on the film and the success, and I hope it continues, and I hope that we hear more from you with more fascinating news about what's out there and maybe maybe get some answers sometime soon which would be really exciting and you know what if i get some answers you know i'm not going to keep them to myself i'm sharing no, please them. don't 
<laughs> Let us know. Well, thank you so much, Mark. I appreciate it. It's great. Thanks for listening. And thank you, Lee Spiegel, for sharing your stories and knowledge about who and what might be visiting us from other worlds. Weird Historian is brought to you by me, Mark Hartsman. This episode features clips from The Phenomenon, directed by James Fox. The theme song was created by Steffi Copeland. And this episode was edited and mixed by James Archer. Further strange tales, check out my site, weirdhistorian.com, and follow at Weird Historian on Instagram. And if you like UFOs, science, and science fiction, pick up my new book, The Big Book of Mars, from Quirk Books. Lastly, if you like this podcast, tell your friends and share it wherever you share stuff. Until next time, have a weird day. <laughs>